And I've titled the message this morning, When God Judges a Nation. When God Judges a Nation. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for the privilege of opening your word. Lord, we believe that your word is life. We believe your word is divinely inspired. The Bible is divinely inspired. It's profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God may be equipped, fully equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we submit to it today, not to the ideas of man, but to the power of your word. We submit to it. And God, I pray that you'd speak to each one of our hearts. And I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When God judges a nation. So we have an interesting section here in John chapter 12. And so we have some work to do. So I just want to, on the front side, I want to give you a little, a little uh, preacher warning to buckle your seatbelt, lean in, uh, put your thinking cap on, let's get ready to dive into God's Word. So it is a really, uh, some challenging parts of this section we're going to look at. But by way of introduction, who in here is naturally patient? I would assume that all of you that laughed are not naturally patient, or you're married to someone who's not naturally patient. So is there anybody here that you just are naturally patient? I, I would say that there are some that are like that. I've been around those people. Their, their, their blood pressure just is like at a low level all the time. Nothing really flusters them. And, you know, I, was, I flew yesterday to Houston and flew back and... You can see the people that are not naturally patient and the ones that are. The ones that are not naturally patient, they're the ones that are in the first of the line. I, so I'm waiting in line. You know, I flew with Southwest, and you got the A group, B group, C group. So I'm, I'm in the A group, and so they got the guy that's in front of me, and, and you can tell he's not naturally patient. And he's, he's asking me, like I would know this, he says, why is it that these pre-board people get to get in line in front of me? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I said, I would think it's because would think it's because they maybe have a disability or they're military. And I said, and that, that's a good thing, right? And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you could tell he was, he was not naturally patient. You know who is naturally patient? God. He's naturally patient. He is, he's not just, not, he's, he's naturally patient because he is patient by nature. It's who God is. He is patient with us. He's not like the man in front of me in the A group waiting to get on the plane uh, to, to go back to New Orleans. He is, he, is, he is beyond patient. He is patient with us. When you look at the, the story of Scripture, you look at Israel in particular, and this is what we're going to focus on a big part of this message, the nation of Israel, when God judges a nation. God, wasn't he abundantly patient with his people Israel over and over and over again? Over and over again, they would, they would, they'd follow him and they would obey his law and then they would go after foreign gods. They would intermarry with pagan nations, go after their, their pagan gods. And God was patient with them and he would draw them back and he would draw them back and he would restore them. And, and, and it was just this cycle of, of God continually being patient in the, in spite of the fact that scripture describes Israel, particular in the 40 years in the wilderness, as being stiff-necked. You know, stiff-necked hard-headed. They had a tete dure, right? But God was patient with them. But there's something about the nature of God 
that we don't necessarily like to talk about. We don't really want to talk about it. Uh, we want to talk about his patience, but there is a time that comes when God's patience runs out. There's a time where judgment comes. There's a time when, when God says, enough is enough. My patience is ending with this person, with this, these people, with this nation. We see, you also see that throughout Scripture. And we will see it in the end times, where God is going to say, my patience is no more. My patience is no more. We are in the end times right now. And God's going to say, my patience is no more. And so this is what we're going to look at. I, I love what Romans 2, 4 through 5 says. It says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness or forbearance and patience? Do you presume on the patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you hear that? The kindness of God is meant to lead people to repentance. Well, how is God kind? In the fact that he doesn't give us the wrath that we deserve. And he's patient with humanity. And he's waiting, he's waiting. And, and, and I love what Paul says there in Romans. Do you presume? Are you presumptuous? You presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance. He's long bearing with us. He's patient. He's kind. Don't you know that he is that way because he wants you to repent, to escape wrath and judgment? And so in this text, this is what we're going to see. This is the end. This is where end. We're getting to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Right before he goes to the upper room and he has the upper room discourse and he's speaking to his disciples. His public ministry is about to end. So this is the text. This is what we're going to look at. He spent three and a half years calling on people to repent and believe. Repent and believe. He came for Israel. He came first to Israel, to his people. And he called them to repent. And now this, we're getting towards the end. Listen to this text. John 12, 36 through 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Wow. What a text, huh? Ye hardened their hearts. He blinded their eyes. They did not believe, and then they could not believe. They would not believe, and then they could not believe. And, and, and we see a picture of God's judgment, and we will see two realities of what happens before judgment comes on a nation, before judgment comes on the nations of the world, and before judgment will come on an individual life. We're going to see what happens before that happens. And then we're going to look at, we're going to end with why people or nations or individuals find themselves under the judgment of God. So you guys going to track with me here? What happens before judgment comes on a nation, on the nations of the world, or on an individual, and why 
do people find themselves un- under judgment? Well, the first thing we see, I think, right from this text, it's so clear. The first thing is before the Lord hides himself, he gives ample reason to believe. Did you see it in the text? Before the Lord hides himself, he gives ample reason to believe. Look back, John 12. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Before the Lord hides himself, he gives plenty of opportunity for people to believe, plenty of reason for them to believe, so so that... The word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is Isaiah 53. So that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So, a little context before we unpack the reasons why God's judgment comes. Jesus is departing and he's going to hide himself. And so John, John is going to describe, this, the text we just read is John's description of, of the judgment that has come to Israel, of why the Lord is hiding himself, and, and, and this is his description. Next week, we're going to get the final words of Jesus' public ministry, and that'll be next week's sermon. So, so he's, he's hiding himself. He's about to hide himself, and John is just describing the reason behind that hiding, and then next week, Jesus is going to, you're, you're going to see verse 44, he's going to cry out, believe. It's his final call. Israel, believe, turn, repent, right? But right now, here's a description. Here's a description of why Jesus is hiding. It's a judgment. So notice the text says, they still did not believe in him. They still did not believe in him. What that means is it it would be like saying, in spite of all the evidence, in spite of all the evidence, they would not believe. I mean, that's what the text is saying there. In spite of all of the evidence of who Christ was, they would not believe. They still didn't believe against all evidence. And what what was it that they did not believe, that the evidence showed? Well, they didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus did not come. He didn't claim when he came, and he did the miracles he did, and he, he taught the way he taught. He didn't come to declare that he was just a good teacher, though he was the greatest teacher that ever lived. He didn't just come to be a miracle worker. He didn't just come to, to be seen as a, miracle worker, as a miracle worker. He came to call people to worship him. He came to call people to worship him as God, as the son of God. And so the miracles were meant to point to the reality of who he was, and they would not believe that. What did they believe about him? I think for a while they believed, wow, this, this man must be the Messiah, who's going to establish an earthly kingdom. And Jesus would constantly push against that mindset. You even had the disciples jockeying for position and how to get into a higher position of authority in Jesus's kingdom as the Messiah. And they never really understood, even to the end, of why Jesus came. And he came, he came to demonstrate who he was. And ultimately, he came to pay the price for sins. But they would not believe. They would not believe what Jesus said and what he proved that he was. And the time, listen, the time for displaying his power was done. It was done, over. Jesus was going dark. The light was about to go out. Do you remember last week, what did did our text say last week? Jesus says, you have the light for a little while longer. Believe while you have the light. And then verse 36 says, he hid himself from them. He's going dark. He's hiding himself. The time for displaying his power was over. And 
and it's interesting, you know, John, John references the prophet Isaiah here in verse 38, so that the word might be spoken that was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 1, that's what he was re- referencing. And, it, and Isaiah the prophet says this, who has believed what he's heard from us? So who's, who's, who's believed? Who's believed about Christ? Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant Christ. It's about Jesus, about his substitutionary work on the cross. And the prophet starts off and says, who's believed what we've heard? Who's believed the report? And listen, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's speaking about Israel here. He's saying the arm of the Lord has been revealed to Israel. They, for three and a half years, have seen the mighty arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord, that description, is meant to describe the power of God. The arm of the Lord is his strength, is his power. So John is saying, and he's he's referencing what Isaiah the prophet said. He says the arm of the Lord was revealed to Israel. The power of God was revealed through Christ. And who has believed? Who has believed? This is what John is referencing. Jesus is about to go silent and go dark and about to hide himself from Israel publicly. And they would not believe the power was demonstrated. The power was demonstrated when he walked among Israel. And you know, John, this study of the Gospel of John, this is what this study is all about. The Gospel of John was written. You remember uh, we studied at the very beginning uh, 44 weeks ago, we studied, or a little longer than 44 weeks ago, but we studied uh, John chapter 20, where John gives his reason for why he wrote this account. And he said that, that he wrote this account, and he talked, about, he talked about the signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose of why John wrote his account. It's the purpose of why Jesus came, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John even continues in, in verse tw- chapter 21. Look at 21, John 21, 25. Now there was, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, John says, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Do you hear that? Wow. You know, you, you, you read our, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the signs that Jesus did in the miracles, and you think, wow, that is overwhelming evidence for the, the reality of who Christ was. But John is saying there, he says, if we had written all the things that Jesus did, I suppose that all the books in all the world could not contain all the things that would need to have been written. Wow. Before Jesus hides himself, before the Lord hides himself, he gives ample reason to believe. The books couldn't even hold all the things that Jesus did to prove who he was. John focuses on seven. If all they had was the seven that John focuses on, they had ample reason to believe. Did they not? What were the seven signs of John? What was the first miracle that Jesus did? Turn the water into wine, John chapter 2. The second one that we see is a healing of the nobleman's son. Think about that. Jesus healed a man just with his word. He says, hey, guy, go back home. He's healed. And they confirmed that the moment that Jesus said, your son is healed, go back home, is when his son was healed. With his word. The healing of the nobleman's son. Healing of the man at the pool. So this is a man that would have been a, a beggar. He was lame. People would have known him because of his begging at the temple like the other lame uh, people would have begged. And he was healed. Word was spreading. And, and, and then, he, then he gets this public, big, huge public miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, not including women and children. So you're thinking 10 to 12,000 people were fed with five loaves and two fish. Isn't that amazing? What a powerful demonstration 
walking on the water. Walking on the water. You know that had to have gotten out, didn't it? Healing a man born blind. And then the capstone, as we looked at in John chapter 11, the capstone of his earthly ministry was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I want to tell you, only God raises the dead. Only the Son of God can raise the dead. God is the only one who can raise dead people. That should have been all they needed to understand who Jesus was. But Israel would not believe. When God judges a nation, he looks at Israel and he says, you won't believe, you won't believe, you won't believe, in spite of all of the signs. And so, so that, that there were a few outliers that did believe, right? A few outliers. I think at the birth of the church, there was, there was 120 that were in the upper room. Few outliers believe, but here's the reality. The overwhelming majority would not believe the overwhelming evidence. The overwhelming majority would not believe the overwhelming evidence. And you know the ones who should have believed? Who were the ones who should have believed first? The Pharisees should have believed first. They should have been the first ones. Why? They knew the law. They knew the prophets. They knew the prophets. They knew the prophecies concerning who the Messiah was going to be. They should have known. They should have put two and two together. They were the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. And they should have led the nation to the truth of Christ, but they didn't. And, and when you get to the end, uh, towards the end of, of Jesus' earthly ministry, you see Matthew 23 gives the account of Jesus looking over Jerusalem and crying out over Israel, crying out over the nation. What does he say? He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often, you hear the patience of our Lord? How often I've gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You're not willing. And what is the consequence of not being willing to follow Christ? See, your house is left to you desolate. The end of rejection of Christ is emptiness. That's the end of it. They still did not believe. They would not believe in spite of all. Think about that. In spite of all. Of the, would not believe in spite of all of the evidence. Would not believe. Here's something to think about. I just, want, just a little brain exercise here. How many of you have known people to believe something in spite of the lack of evidence? Right, right. So, so, so Israel would not believe that Jesus was the Son of God in spite of all of the mountain of evidence. Have you ever known somebody who believed something and they lacked evidence or had no evidence? Kind of reminds me of uh, the young earthers. You've heard, of, excuse me, the flat earthers, not young earthers, <laughs> the flat earthers. Have you heard of flat earthers? Reminds me of the flat earthers. I'm a young earther. Uh, that's another subject, another message. But uh, have you heard of the, the flat earthers? So that's what it reminds me of. If you're a flat earther, don't raise your hand. I'm not trying to isolate you, ostracize you. But in the 1970s and 80s, a man named Charles Kenneth Johnson became a celebrity, a minor celebrity, for his refusal, his refusal to believe that the earth was round. Johnson wrote off such spectacles like the sunrise and the sunset as optical illusions. So if you want to know the history of, if you are a flat earther here, you know the history of flat earth, that's the history right there. This guy believes that the sunrise and sunset are optical illusions. That's, that's your history. And he also believed uh, that Charles Lindbergh proved the earth was flat, 
and claimed that NASA and the moon landing were nothing but hoaxes. So Johnson and others believed in a flat earth without real evidence. Actually, I would argue no evidence. And from the 70s and 80s, this is when their belief started. But think about it. I mean, this was just like eight to 10 years ago. It's probably still going on. They're having conventions for flat earthers to come together to discuss why the earth is flat. Where the Bible talks about the earth being a sphere, right? And we have plenty of evidence with the Hubble Space Telescope. They, 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 with the modern science and technology for us to be able to look at the earth and see that it is round. Lack of evidence, but they believe it. I read an article last night, just last night, that there's somebody who called 911. This man called 911 and said that he saw aliens in his backyard. And he says, I promise you, it was real. And so now this is a lead art. Listen, lead article on Fox News. Lead article, top article, not at the bottom of the page. Top article. And some of you in here may think, ah, I don't know, Pastor Ben, I might believe in him. No evidence. So by contrast, think about that. Jesus demonstrated beyond a reasonable doubt who he was. He had an ample pile of evidence, but people would not believe. And here's the reality. Here's where it meets our world. Here's where, here's where I, I want you to think about this. We're, we're not Israel. We're a bunch of Gentiles here. And so, 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 so what about us? Will we believe in God? Will we believe in Christ? And here's what I say. God has made himself obvious to discern. He's made himself obvious to discern. The psalmist says that only a fool says in his heart there is no God. There's a mountain of evidence to tell us that God is real, that his, his son, Jesus, is God in the flesh, that he died for our sins and he rose again. There's a mountain of evidence to believe that, to base our faith on it, to live our life on that reality. And, and the world still rejects the reality of God. They reject the reality of God, reject the reality of a, of a creator. I, I was listening to an interview that Danny DeVito did with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know the Terminator? I'll be back. I'll be back. Listen to Arnold Schwarzenegger. DeVito asked him, said, so how's this all in? What's going to happen? How's this all going to end, buddy? And Arnold, Arnold, the Terminator, said, when people talk about I'll see them again in heaven, it sounds so good. But the reality is, is that we won't see each other again after we're gone. That's the sad part. I know people feel comfortable with death, but I don't. And so Danny DeVito pressed in and said, why don't you feel comfortable with death? And he said, Arnold said this, because I will miss everything to sit here with you that will one day be gone, to have fun and to go to the gym and to pump up, to ride my bike on the beach, to travel around, to see interesting things all over the world. And he ends with this. He says, life, it's the best. So I thought about that. I thought about what Arnold was saying there. And somewhere in his brain, he has believed that he came into existence all on his own. Yeah, he might would, he would agree that he had a mom and a dad who gave birth to him, and he, he would agree with that. But somewhere in his brain, he believes that he is the result of just a random cosmic accident, and that the breath that he's breathing and the words that he's articulating about how good life is, he's believing that that good life doesn't come from God. 
And you know what he's doing? He's ignoring the obvious reality of God. God does give us good things so we can go to the gym and pump up and ride our bike on the beach and travel all around the world and see God's beautiful creation. But the breath coming out of Arnold's mouth is, a, is the breath of a fool. It's the breath of a fool. Only a fool would say, Arnold, only a fool would say that there's no God. Only a fool. Why? Look at Romans 1 says. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Arnold, you're without excuse. If you're a non-believer here today, you're without excuse for your belief in God. Without excuse. Why? Because God has made himself clearly perceived through creation. So the first thing we see, first reason why judgment comes into people's lives is because they ignore the obvious reality. Before judgment comes, before the Lord hides himself, he gives people ample reason to believe. Ample reason. Do you believe that? But judgment comes on the heels of willful rejection of Christ. Judgment comes on the heels of willful rejection of Christ. Look, the second thing that we see, second reason judgment comes. So number two, if people continue in unbelief, there will come a time when they cannot believe. If people continue in belief, there will come a time when they cannot believe. Look back to our text. It's right there in the text. What did we read earlier? In spite of all the evidence, in spite of all the signs that they did, they would not believe. What does the next verse say? Verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Does that challenge your thinking like it does me? I mean, they could not believe. Well, what does the text say? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah. John says, okay, let's talk about Isaiah again. It says Isaiah 6. He is, why could they not believe? Because he, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Wow. Blinding of eyes, hardening of hearts. God blinds eyes and hardens hearts. Is that what the Bible says? It does. I'm just the, the, the delivery man this morning. Okay, we can go home. Do y'all need an explanation? Uh, sometimes I think we over-explain things. So I'm going to try to help us explain and understand. What does it mean? They would not believe, but then they could not. They would not, therefore they could not. This is the progressive or the progression of what would be called willful unbelief and then the judicial judgment of God on sinners who refuse to believe. The judicial judge, judgment of God on sinners. This is what we see in Isaiah 6. We can see it in Romans chapter 9 as well. well. We'll look at Romans 9 here in a few minutes. John again references Isaiah. This time he gives an example of what happens to those who refuse to believe and harden their own hearts towards God. Isaiah says in chapter 6, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. This is called judicial blindness or judicial hardening. This is a form of God's judgment. I could take you through many places in the Bible where we see the judicial blinding blinding of eyes and hardening of hearts. But I'm just going to give you three, just to help us out here. Do you remember Pharaoh? Here are three examples of the hardening of hearts, the, the blindness, the judicial blindness and judicial hardening. Pharaoh, look at Exodus chapter 7. God says this of Pharaoh, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So God is telling that to Moses. He's saying, Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to see the signs, but he's not going to believe. 
He's not, I'm going to harden his heart. He won't listen to you. Now look at Exodus 8, verse 15 and verse 32. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he, he hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Look at verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So actually, if you study through Exodus there, there's 10 times where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and there's 10 times where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you see it? There's the willful rejection of God, and then the turning over of that person to the judicial hardening of God. He, Pharaoh would not believe. He hardened his own heart, and then he got to the point where he could not believe because God hardened his heart in judgment. It's a judgment of God. That's what the text says. Would not, cannot, would not, then cannot. Judicial hardening. Here's another example. What about Judas? That's a hard one to think about, right? Judas. Look at John chapter 12. Let's look at Judas's life. It says, why was this ointment? This is after the alabaster box was, was broken over Jesus's feet and Judas complains about it. It says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor, Judas says. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So who do we see is Judas's God? Money. Who does he love more than money? Nobody. He loves money and himself more than Christ, right? So look at, again, continuing on the journey with Judas, Mark 14, 10 through 11, then Judas Iscariot, that later on down the road, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to, to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Do, do, do you see that? The alabaster box was broken over Jesus' feet, and he said, what waste. And so you see his heart of idolatry, of true worship, was after greed and money and possessions. And then you see when he goes to betray Jesus, they say, we'll give you money, Judas. And then he immediately sought an opportunity to betray Jesus because he loved money more than he loved Jesus. You see that? A hardening of his own heart. He was hardening his heart against God, I, I love what one, this commentary says, one commentary says about Judas. Judas was a lover of money who was willing to steal funds intended to help the poor in order to enrich himself. By entertaining such idolatry, Judas made his heart hard enough to betray God incarnate in the hands of wicked men. Did, did, did you hear that? Because of his love for money, he, he hardened his heart hard enough that he was willing to betray the Son of God. Now, here's the judicial hardening. I don't know if you've really seen it like this before. Listen, you see the progression, the hardening of Judas's heart on, on his own. Now look at the, ju the judicial hardening in the upper room. John 13, we're going to get to it in a couple weeks. John 13, verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered. They asked him. He says, one of you will betray me. And they said, who is it going to be? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. You guys tracking? Jesus says, okay, you want to know who's going to betray me? I'm going to take this bread, I'm going to dip it, and I'm going to give it to somebody, and that's who's going to betray me. Now watch. So then, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Now listen to the judicial hardening. He gave it to Judas. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, entered Judas. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, 
do quickly. Wow. Would not, would not, would not, and then he could not. He was hardened by God. Is that, is that enough examples? It's not easy to swallow, but it's a reality. I'll, 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 I'll give you one more. We won't read all the sections. But do you remember in Romans 1? I'm going to get to it here. We're going to explain it a little bit more. But in Romans 1, just to touch on it briefly, it says, therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness, to lust, to perversion. Uh, it says it there in verse 24, God gave them up. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. God gave them up, says he gave them up twice to vile passions. Uh, likewise, men leaving the natural use of women. So homosexuality, uh, God gave them up to that, to that direction. And they received uh, the penalty of their error, which was due. And look at verse 26. Excuse me, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. God gave them up. You will not. You will not. This is the way you want to go. You want to go. God gave them up. God gave them up. And then God gave them over to a debased mind. Would not. Refuse to obey. Refuse to submit. Refuse to believe. And judgment comes, and then they cannot. It's hard. I love what Leon Morris points out about this. This is so good for us to think about. When John quotes, he has blinded their eyes. He does not mean that the blindness takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice. It was their own deliberate choice, their own fault. Make no mistake about that. Or as D.A. Carson, I love what D.A. Carson says about it in his commentary on John. I got to read it a couple times to you because of the words he uses. God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or pure beings. I'm going to read that one more time. God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or morally pure beings. But this hardening is presented as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and to be what they themselves have chosen. Do you guys see that? So what do we see? We see it as a sobering reality that those who consistently harden their hearts against God may find themselves hardened by him in judgment. So ultimately, what do we see at work here at the same time? We see God's sovereignty, and we see man's will. That's what we see working at the same time. And, and I've, I've approached this subject once or twice in the five years I've been here. And it's never an easy subject to approach when you see man hardening themselves. But then you see God hardening and blinding people's eyes. And we think that's not fair. That's unjust. And so we struggle with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We, we get hung up on it. But here's what I want to tell you. Both are true. Does God not have the right to harden who he wants to harden? Does God not have the right to blind who he wants to blind? Is not God in charge? And is not man fully culpable and responsible for the direction they live their life? Both are true at the same time. And I think what happens is in Christianity is that we like to land on either side of the camp. We like to land on the God's sovereignty side or the man's free will side. But I want to land on both sides because both are in the Bible. 
I can't pass over, it would have been easy to pass over John 12 here and not talk about the blinding of eyes and the hardening of hearts. But it's in the text because it's good. It's from God. It should be sobering for us to remind, to, to, to see this reality of the judgment of God. That there can come a time, listen, where people who will reject God will reject God and there'll come a time where God would say, it's over for you. You've rejected me. There will come a time of judgment. We don't like a message of judgment in the Bible. We want a, a message of universalism, that everyone gets saved in the end. But do we believe that there is an actual hell, literal eternal punishment, or do we not? And will there be a time where people will say, well, God will say no more. You would not, you would not, you would not. Now you cannot. You cannot. So Romans 9 helps us a little bit. I just want to read this as we hurry on. Listen to this. This helps us. Paul talks about early in Romans 9, the, the, uh, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Talks about the hardening of hearts and the, the judicial hardening of Israel. And listen to what Paul says, Romans 9 verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so then you'll say to me, and maybe you'll say to me for just reading the scripture, maybe you'll say to me, and I'm just, I'm just reading it, and you might be thinking. And you may say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man? Who are you, Arnold Schwarzenegger? With the breath I've put in your lungs, who are you? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Wow. So the point is this. May we not miss the point. The point is this. God's in charge. He does what he pleases. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That's the point. That God is in charge. He makes the rules. He is the one who is sovereign and he is the one who is in control. And he can harden who he wants to harden. He can blind who he wants to blind. But it is never at the expense of man's responsibility. God does all that he pleases. So the question is, is what does God, what, what pleases God? What pleases God? What does he want to see happen? What pleases him? What is his desire for his creation? Is he just going around hardening people's hearts and blinding their eyes because that's just what he wants to do? I don't think so. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Listen to verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his purpose, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's desire for his creation is that they would acknowledge him as the creator and they would look to his son for redemption and, and reconciliation. He is patient. He is waiting. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. He's not a capricious God that is just, 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 just willy-nilly going around. I'm going to harden this person. I'm going to harden that person. He is waiting and he is waiting and he's looking at people that are saying, I will not follow God and I, I will not follow God and I, 
I will not believe. I will follow my own God and my own lust. And that they reject him and they reject him. And God is waiting and he is waiting and he is patient. And he wants everyone of his creations to repent and to believe in him. It's the truth of God's word. And when I think about this, I think about our nation. When God judges a nation. Yeah, I thought about Israel because this is the point of the text. But I thought about our country. Look at our country today. Now watch yesterday. President Biden standing on the White House lawn. Pride 2023. It's like the banner over the year. Pride. And he says to all the crowd that's there, happy pride. And I think, what an oxymoron. I mean, I'm not calling President Biden a moron. I said, that phrase is an oxymoron. Happy pride? When is pride ever happy? Proverbs says that pride comes before destruction. Isn't it interesting that the banner for the LGBTQ community is pride? And a rainbow? You know what the rainbow was a symbol of? The fact that God will not judge the world again by a flood because of idolatry and, 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 and baseness of sin. The world had, had gotten over completely and rejected God totally. And he judged them by a flood. They're using a symbol of a promise not to judge as their symbol. It's pride in the face of God, their creator. Pride, happy pride. So think about our nation. Would not, would not, would not, would not. There will come a time when they cannot. The hardening of God. The mercy runs out. You know what it should do for us? It shouldn't. Look, I, I know your brains went through mental gymnastics in, a few minutes ago, and we're done with that. Don't let that cause you to, to freak out. It, it, it shows you who God is. You know what it should cause you to do? Bow down in reverence and worship of a God who is holy of a God who is holy. Happy pride. God, forgive our nation. You want to go that way? It's Romans 1. Here's what I believe about our nation. Our nation is under the Romans 1 judgment of God. He gave them up. You want to go? Okay, go. Go. You go that way? You go. And he's prayerfully, people will repent before he turns them completely over to a, de to a debased mind. The point of this section in John 12 is that if people continue in unbelief, there will come a time when they cannot believe and God will turn people over. So we've looked at the reasons why judgment comes, this judicial hardening and why it, come, why it did come for Israel. But how do nations get here? How do people get here? How do nations of the world get to this point? How do people individually get to this point? Well, here's right from the text. Thirdly, people will either love the praise of God or the praise of man. That's how people get to that point. They will either love the praise of God or the praise of man. Look back to the text, John 12, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Wow, looks good, right? They believed. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So it looks good that they believed, does it not? They believed. But what did we read earlier? What did Pastor Jimmy read earlier in Romans 10? If you believe in your heart and you can 
Confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. This was a false belief. They believed, but they didn't believe enough to confess it, and so they loved themselves more than they loved God. It's the point. This is how people get to that point. Therefore, their belief was not genuine. What, what, what was it that hindered these people from truly believing? It was a love issue. That's what hindered them from truly believing, and that's what hinders people from believing now. It's a love issue. They love the glory or the praise, or glory there means praise. They love the praise that comes from man more than the glory or praise that comes from God. And what an amazing thing to think about right there, that someone, maybe someone in here today, would ever care more about what people think than what God thinks. What an amazing thing to ponder, that people would be more concerned about pleasing people instead of pleasing their creator. You know, we, we, we have to please a lot of people in our life, don't we? We understand pleasing people. But when you're thinking about the foundation of what your life is, it is an amazing thing to consider that you would, anyone would ever care more, ultimately in the end, of what somebody else thinks about them over what God thinks about them. The fear of man's approval or disapproval will cause people to make the greatest of mistakes, will it not? And we are living in a nation that is filled with people who are busy living their lives to please themselves and others. And may we choose this day to live to please the Lord. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. But just as you have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who does what? Who tests our hearts. The person we live to please with our actions and our life, they can't test our heart. They don't know our heart. The God of creation who made you, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm sorry for picking on him, but he's the one who put that breath in your lung, buddy. He put the breath in our lung. The people you're trying to please didn't make you. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And this is how people end up in judgment. Before judgment comes, they live a life only to please themselves and to please others, only to live for themselves and to live for temporary realities. So here's what we've seen so far. Before judgment comes, the Lord gives ample reason or opportunity to believe. And if people continue in unbelief, the Bible says, the Bible says, they run the risk of not being able to repent. They run the risk of falling under the judgment of God. So, how do you escape judgment? Maybe you came in here today and you're like, wow, what a Sunday to come in. <laughs> how do you escape judgment? You live your life to please the Lord. That's how you escape judgment. You live your life to please the Lord. And what pleases the Lord? What pleases the Lord, what pleases God, the Father, is that you would be found in his Son, Jesus. That's what pleases the Lord. What pleases the Lord is that you would believe in the Lord Jesus, that you would repent of your sins and you would confess Christ as your Lord that's what would please him. That's what pleases God. Live your life to please the one who made you. Live your life like you understand that you are not your own. That you're not your own. You were bought with a price. 
Obey God with your body. So, for those of us here today, that maybe that's who you are, you came in here, you can repent and believe today. You can repent and believe today. You can please God with your life by making the greatest decision anyone can ever make to escape judgment, which is to fall on Christ. But if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're already living your life to please him, I just want to tell you, living a life to please God in the middle of a pagan society that we live in, that flaunts sin at the highest possible place and position, if you want to live to please God today in this culture, you will not be popular. If you're popular, you should be afraid. You will not be popular, you will not be liked, and you will be disagreed with if you're living to please God. You might be persecuted. You might be persecuted if you live to please God. Because living to please God and his word will put you right in contrast against a world that is living to please themselves. Why don't you do that? Well, I want to please God. Why don't you drink that? I want to please God. Why don't you sleep with that person? Well, I want to please God. Why don't you cheat on your taxes? Well, I want to please God. Why don't you commit adultery? I want to please God. Why don't, because I, I fear God more than I fear man. So you might not be popular, you won't be popular, you won't be liked, people will disagree with you, and you might be persecuted, but you gotta end this some good news, okay? But one day, when the scales are weighed, only those who are found in Christ can truly please the Lord, and that is what matters the most, amen? amen. That's what matters the most, amen. I love you. <laughs>